Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Abracatinos. And we're picking up this evening with the first volume uh, for those of you who might be new. And we are on page 192 at the very bottom of the page. And uh, these hypotheses that we are looking at, 22, 23, and 24, are all tied together uh, in terms of avoiding, the, the one we're looking at now is avoiding meetings uh, with, with men or anything else that would become a disturbance to the heart. So anyone or any interaction that can uh, take from us that something that has been hard won, you know, both an external and internal silence and distract us from, uh, in particular, from the unceasing prayer that we are, are called to. The, the next letter or next hypothesis that we'll be looking at is avoiding uh, men who can bring us spiritual harm, that having interactions uh, with, with anyone, certainly living a, a dissolute life, uh, is not without its cost. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't show charity to others, but it's saying that we are not to, you know, make ourselves, you know, acquaintances and friends and enter into circumstances that are going to end up to harming us spiritually or distract, distracting us from God. And then finally, in the hypothesis 24, we'll be looking at avoiding uh, engaging in worldly affairs. Even they tell us if it seems justified to us that so we're to allow ourselves to be driven and guided by the providence of God. So there might be certain circumstances or worldly affairs that seem to pull us or to draw us and some of the stories that are given are monks being asked to sort of engage in uh, a set of circumstances where there's uh, a conflict and to intercede in some sort of way. And the pull to do that out of a sense of charity, but in particular for those who are called to the monastic life, this would be a pull away from that silence to engage in uh, the affairs of the world Again, seemingly justified, but nonetheless contrary to their vocation. Now, we'll have to certainly talk through that and see how that would apply to our lives. But uh, this is where we'll be heading here in the next uh, couple of pages. So again, the bottom of page 192. Now, the monk who does not do this, but continually approaches worldly people without any pressing need or whiles away his time with them is not strictly speaking a monk and will never derive any benefit, but will rather garner the following from spending time with worldly people. At the outset, when he approaches them, he may restrain his tongue, fast and humble himself until he becomes known and the report goes out that such, a, such, such and such a monk is a servant of God. Then immediately, Satan prompts worldly people to bring him everything he needs by way of wine and money and anything else, saying of him, he's a holy man, a holy man. When he hears holy man, the poor fellow is puffed up and begins to sit with them, eating, drinking, and relaxing. And when he stands up and chants, he raises his voice so that the worldly people may say that such and such a monk chants and keeps vigil and that they may praise him. As a result of these praises, he swells up with greater pride and then humility completely departs from him. So one of the great costs, and I think we've seen this in our own day as well, not simply with monks, but the cost is being driven into pride that uh, rather than remaining in the setting of the monastery and pursuing its end, which is purity of heart and unceasing uh, prayer before God, that uh, they are drawn into the world by the attention of others. And it doesn't take much, I think, to swell our need for self-esteem and to puff us up, as the author tells us here, uh, by being praised by others or by being given things by them, to think more of ourselves because of it. And, uh, and so all that has been gained by the renunciation of the world and the things of this world to enter into the monastery uh, can be lost within a, a very short period of time. And the loss can be devastating. And uh, one can lose one's zeal for, for the Lord and for the monastic life altogether and then end up leaving the monastery. So pride is the, the first thing that is lost through freely engaging in these, these kinds of meetings. 
He goes on to say, so then if anyone speaks a harsh word to him, he replies more harshly and thus his anger aided by vainglory increases enormously inside him. And carnal desire is kindled more intensely within him as he continually beholds women and children and hears worldly sayings. Hence he commits adultery every day without realizing it. For the Lord says, whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so, you know, pride gives way then to the, the passion of anger when anyone would contradict him or what he's thinking or what he's teaching having been puffed up already by, by the pride that had been heaped on him, then becomes angry and uh, expresses it uh, to others whenever they, they would contradict him. Uh, or then having been weakened uh, by these two passions, then is drawn into to lustfulness itself. If, again, even if not being fully conscious and aware of it, that uh, it can be passing thoughts or simply the pleasure of being around uh, others of the opposite sex in such a way that it's stirring the imagination, the desires within uh, the monk, perhaps memory. And again, it doesn't take long. And it can simply be a matter of thought that becomes the, the distraction and drives him away from his fundamental purpose. So pride, anger, adultery, lust, and then finally avarice. Subsequently, he attempts to gather together what he needs for the whole year, both for his own sake and for that of his visitors. Next, he doubles these supplies, supposedly in order to offer greater refreshment to those who visit him. And as a result of this, he collects gold and silver. He does not cease then adding to his evils until the demons finally laugh at him as they remove him from God and plunge him into the abyss of avarice. For the love of money is the root of all evils, as the apostle said, and as far as heaven is from the earth, so far is the avaricious monk from the glory of God. Indeed, there is no other, no evil greater than a monk who loves money. Uh, that might seem surprising, you know, after having pride and lusts, adultery, uh, anger being put forward, that avarice is the undoing uh, of the monk. And I think part of the reason, and what I've read from the fathers, is that avarice is, uh, can never be sated, that it always feeds upon itself. The more that one has, the more than what one, one wants. And so uh, one is always trying to increase uh, one's financial holdings or possessions uh, you know, for whatever reason, as it's given here to provide for visitors in some way or another, that it constantly feeds upon itself. So the more that one possesses, the more that one desires. And at this point, the, the author says that the, the demons begin to mock the monk, because one who has consciously made the choice to leave the world and everything within it, uh, to strip himself not only with contact with the world, uh, but from uh, holding on to anything within the world to give oneself completely over to Christ, all of a sudden finds himself wrapped in all the passions and being driven down completely by the desire for worldly goods. So it's a complete contradiction of the monastic life. And uh, I think when we look at this, we might say, okay, we live within the world. And so there are things that we need in order to provide for ourselves and for our loved ones, and that we have to have a job and make a living, and all of that's true. But what we see here in terms of the movement uh, within the monk's heart is also true for all of us. It's not as though the passions work uh, in a different way in that regard. They're all connected to each other. Uh, whatever is the dominant passion within, within us will often be the one that the demons seek to stir up the most. And once we give ourselves over to one, then we become more vulnerable to all the others. And so we can find ourselves in a similar position, whatever uh, station in life or whatever vocation we have embraced, that we can be led to turn against it uh, by 
these subtle movements and suggestions of the demons and then our free embrace of the, the suggestions that they put before us. Any comments so far on this little section? Anything anyone would like to add? Okay. A monk who consorts with worldly people truly needs the prayers of many holy fathers with the hope that they can help him even to the smallest extent. For who is there to help one who is throwing himself to death? Do we not hear the apostle John saying, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of God, the father is not in him. And James, the brother of God, saying, whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God, for the friendship of the world is hostile to God. And so it's interesting, you know, Deacon Ed was speaking here of Romania, in Romania, of individuals waiting, uh, you know, entire day to be able to speak to a spiritual elder, uh, having a clear sense of what we read here, the needs uh, the need for the prayers of many of the fathers, uh, even in the smallest of things, especially when an individual, as the author puts it, is throwing himself to death or into death. And, you know, I think with all the things that we are exposed to in this world, we find ourselves doing something in, in maybe in even a more overt fashion, throwing ourselves into death or the things that lead to death that, uh, that uh, in the end turn to dust and have no value or enduring value for us, and yet are magnified in our eyes, you know, both by what we hear from the world itself, uh, but perhaps how we've been formed over the course of, of our lives. Where does our energy go? Where is it directed? What is it that we desire? And again, I think this is the important thing to keep in mind, and that we hear come up so often within the fathers, that desire is the, what is needed, especially in terms of our capacity to love, and what draws us toward God. We are desiring beings, and so we, we experience within ourselves a fundamental lack outside of the relationship with God, and whenever we turn away from God, that desire is misdirected towards other things. And again, you know, if it's something that only can be satisfied by the love of God, then the pull of it is going to be enormous whenever we seek to find its fulfillment within the world and worldly things. And the world is, you know, uh, more than anxious to hold out a plethora of things for us to embrace. Uh, and it becomes uh, more and more clever, I think, in terms of drawing us uh, to the sense that we need this or that thing in order to make our lives easier or more pleasant, to make us happy. And, uh, and so we do well, I think, to take hold of the counsel given in these three, three paragraphs. For again, you know, it's, the message here is not simply for those in black robes. You know, this is about what goes on within the human heart. Let us then flee from the world, brethren, as one flees from a serpent. For if one is bitten by a serpent, he either dies or with difficulty regains his health. It is to our advantage to have one war and not many and countless wars. Tell me, brethren, where did our fathers acquire the virtues, in the world or in the desert? Clearly, in the desert, which was inaccessible to worldly people, how shall we acquire virtue if we are in the world? For if we do not hunger and thirst and shiver and are not far removed from the material goods of the world and do not die to the wishes of the flesh, how shall we live spiritually? How shall we attain to the kingdom of heaven? Indeed, if a soldier does not wage war and conquer, and if further he does not tender booty, he is not deemed worthy of honor. We who eat and drink while remaining in the midst of the worldly people among whom we lived previously, how then shall we be vouchsafed the kingdom of heaven? So if there are certain expectations of a soldier that he enters into battle with honor and fights fiercely, and also brings back 
the goods, the, the treasures of that are gained from that battle. And uh, if he fails to do that, he receives no honor. How is it then that those who seek the things of the kingdom uh, are to enter into the kingdom then if we've only sought the things of the world or valued those things, if we really have not fought the good fight of faith? Now, the desert, as we've so often talked about, is not a, a geographical region. You know, it's, with, it's the heart. It's within the heart. And um, I have this little series uh, that I created uh, on reading the Philoclea called Cydia Desert. And one of the reasons I did that is because there was a book written by Derwis Chitty uh, called The Desert of City, which was about the monastic life in the deserts of Egypt. Extraordinary little book if you ever have the opportunity to, to read it. Uh, but uh, you know what he came to see is that there, there was a teeming life within the desert and that was very much alive and still alive and uh, thousands of monks all still engaged in this warfare. Uh, but we cannot relegate it simply to the, the deserts of Egypt or you know, to the Northern Thubaid, you know, the places or Romania where this, the battle is going on in these monasteries, but it is to be daily within our, within our own hearts. And uh, it's with the same mindset that we have to be asking ourselves these similar questions, maybe rewording them, but asking ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis, what is the spiritual battle that God is calling me to fight? Where does the affliction lie? What, what is attacking me? Am I creating more wars for myself than the one war that God has called me to engage in? Do I stir up certain passions that I find then the demons afflicting me from multiple, uh, you know, from multiple territories so that I'm fighting a, a war on multiple fronts? And so do I need to, to, to have this kind of clarity that leads me to repentance, to seek out spiritual counsel and to immerse myself in the ascetical life? Daniel Allen. Daniel writes, is there a difference between conversing with people and conversing with worldly people in this? Specifically, I think of saints meeting with many people every day to give them counsel or just to listen to them. Saints such as St. Seraphim Seraph or the monk Zosima uh, from uh, the Brothers Karamazov, is, that, is it that they purify their hearts and attain to true humility before then speaking with people? Or again, is it that issue is speaking with people about trivial fr frivolous things that dissipate the monk? It's a good question. In fact, it comes up uh, in the, not the next hypothesis, but the one that follows that certainly it is with worldly people. So those who are driven by the desire for the things of this world, that if we are constantly conversing and engaging them on a day-to-day -day basis, we're going to be drawn along a similar path. Uh, but uh, you know, with those who are fighting the, the same fight, who desire the same things, that there can be good and holy conversation and certainly good and holy friendships as well. Uh, but even you know, those who are asked for counsel have to be discerning. And uh, this comes up in, uh, again in Hypothesis 24, where you know, those who are young in the monastery, novices, if asked for counsel or even asked to pray for individuals are not to be quick to do so or to carry the, uh, the request for uh, for prayers and the needs of others to the elders of the monastery. They are not to take it upon themselves or assume to do this on behalf of others. That, uh, that even in those requests can be certain forms of temptation uh, that can come or deception that can come as well. And so even a seasoned monk uh, or a saintly monk has to be careful in terms of those who are approaching for counsel. And often we hear in the stories of the, of the Desert Fathers that there were many who came 
you know, seeking these men out out of curiosity, you know, that they were, were driven to see if there was anything to the stories that they had heard. And so not genuinely seeking spiritual counsel, but rather to satisfy something much more base within them. And, uh, and so Daniel, your, your question is a good one that the, even in, in our daily discussion, uh, it can be something that feeds our pride or dissipates us and doesn't uh, uh, you know, strengthen another individual or help them in any way. And it might harm us as well in terms of scattering the mind and the heart that religious people aren't beyond uh, you know, our kind of chattering we just chatter about religious things, and yet it can have the same ill effect upon us uh, and open us up to, to greater temptations in doing so. Uh, Ed, uh, Deacon Ed commented on us, those who become spiritual fathers do not seek to become one. Many spend years, 25 plus in prayer and solitude before they may be requested to be a spiritual father and a confessor. Right, you know, and this is something and reading the fathers that has come up often. And, uh, and even in, in our modern times, you'll hear of men entering the monastery at a later age too. You know, certainly there are those who enter in, into their youth, but uh, sometimes there has to be, you know, a kind of emotional maturity as well as spiritual maturity to choose this life and to enter into it. And certainly to become a spiritual father, a confessor, that one has, ha has to have, uh, as we've heard in the Evercatinus, but also in the latter divine ascent, this capacity for discernment, to be able to offer counsel that is rooted in experiential knowledge. And I think in our day and age, there is in the training of, of priests, this kind of rush towards ordination, but, uh, and, you know, one might think four or five years of seminary or formation is a lot, uh, but if it is primarily uh, the study of theology devoid from the formative aspects of, of the life, especially as we read it in the fathers, that it does not do much in terms of preparing one. And then all of a sudden, you know, a young man can be thrown into the confessional or have multiple people asking for spiritual direction. And, and, and it can be problematic. I mean, we had a, a young man uh, from a different oratory who had been studying at a seminary that our men had been studying at at one point and uh, was, had just recently been ordained and was staying to study uh, in another field, staying with the, the oratory for another year or two. And somebody who was much older than him asked him for spiritual direction. And, you know, here he was in his 20s. And uh, again, you know, there, there can be this pull to approach a young priest newly ordained, you know, and to idealize perhaps in one's mind, you know, what he might offer or that there seems to be a piety, a goodness there were, and there might very well be. Uh, but not necessarily the kind of experience. And so in many, you know, orders, uh, you know, certainly there would be restraint on uh, taking on that role. And as Dick and Ed mentioned here, that it could be in, in the East here, you know, over a quarter of a century, we read in the Ladder of Divine Ascent, the one monk, uh, being tested before given the habit for 30 years by, by the abbot, because he had come into the monastery, you know, with, he was sort of a curt individual, had struggles with anger. And so he humbled him daily by making him lie at the gate of the monastery, telling everybody that he was an epileptic. And uh, for, you know, over 25 years. And then when the abbot was finally going to not only give him the habit, but ordain him. You know, he begs to remain in that position because he could see the value of, of the humbling, the value of the virtue of humility. And uh, he died soon after. But I think the, the lesson there is that, you know, the, the pursuit of that virtue has far greater value, not, not only for the individual, but for the church and the world as a whole, 
then thrusting a person into counsel that is not going to be rooted in anything real. So the hidden virtue and the hidden uh, mortifications embraced by the monks in these monasteries, you know, works towards the, their, not only their own salvation, but the salvation of others and the strengthening of the church farther than we can ever imagine. And so I think the way that we think about the monastic life as a whole uh, has to shift and deepen. You know, it's not simply about living according to a particular role. You know, they're, they're at the very heart of the church and, uh, and in, a, in a sense, you know, it's deepest strength because they are completely focused upon Christ or meant to be. And uh, as part of the body of Christ, then they, they become uh, this in, invaluable resource, you know, inestimable in terms of its valuable for, for the church. And so when we hear this language and the descriptions here, this is part of the reason. And I think, you know, there's a tendency in our age to want to make everything at the same level. You know, we worry about making everybody sort of feel valued or that they, you know, are all called to, you know, certainly this fundamental holiness as Christians by virtue of our baptism, but somehow not acknowledging the angelic state of the monks living in the desert weakens the church. You know, that they replace, and we'll hear further on, they replace the fallen angels by embracing this life of complete obedience and mortification and life wholly given over to God. So they truly embrace this angelic life and become this profound witness for the church as a whole, as well as source of strength. Uh, further on, Ed mentioned they are well-versed in sacred scripture and the writings of the Holy Fathers, so they do not share their own opinion. All advice is grounded in the scriptures and the Fathers. Exactly. And again, I think this is something that we've lost, is the church at, at being essentially conservative in the sense of preserving the tradition and nour nourishing uh, oneself and others upon it that our goal is not to, to recreate things or to be creative in that sense, but to root ourselves in that which has arisen out of experience, to root ourselves in the true wisdom of the faith. And once the church becomes disconnected from that, we, we find ourselves vulnerable in, in a whole host of ways and we see the fruit of that. Anthony. Uh, on the motions within the heart and relating to other people in wise or unwise interactions, I think we have a mix of ignorance and vice in the interior life that lead us astray. Imagine that your life is like a garden. You planted pepper seeds, but you have never seen pepper seedlings. And a wild animal enters in and sheds weed seeds and you don't realize it. So when the seedlings come up, you are not exactly sure what is a pepper and what is not. Sometimes you only gradually come to awareness on what is a good plant and a good fruit and what is not. You look at pictures or have an experience, an experienced friend to teach you about the garden. And that year you miss the mark on the good garden. You get some fruit, but not optimal. But you get experience from the next growing season if you pay attention and learn from your mistakes. Keep trying and being patient and, and prune and weed as you realize you need to. Right, and the only thing I would add to that is that you have the more experience to do the pruning. Uh, again, you know, when we take into our own hands to prune the things that we think need pruning, we might not be cutting off the dead branches that produce no fruit. Uh, and so even there, I think we would want, want that action to take place as we've heard and seen in so many of the stories, uh, how important that is. Good example. All right, so a monk who has gold and silver and material possessions does not believe that God who nourishes the beast and monsters in the sea is able to nourish him. And if he cannot provide us with bread, he cannot give us his kingdom. To what end then do we toil? 
Tell me, brethren, do the angels in heaven gather gold and silver or the glory of God? Why then have we renounced the world to collect money and material goods again or to become angels? Or do you not know that the angelic rank that fell from heaven is to be replaced by monks? For this is evident from our own, from our schema, which everyone calls angelic. So he's trying to awaken them to the contradiction in the pursuit and the desire of worldly things, that they have embraced this life that God has called them to, that has led them to to embrace a role uh, of life that is wholly dedicated and given over to God. And so again, is the angelic life. And so if they do not trust in what God will provide in his providence for them and begin to gravitate and to take hold of the things of this world and to obsess about those things, then they've lost faith in uh, uh, in God, but also in, the, in his providence and also in what is given to, to them in the kingdom. And uh, again, you know, I think we've lost this sense of the monastic life. And I think, you know, often we've talked a little bit about this the last time, the, the, the role the, the roles, R-O-L-E-S, taken on by monks and nuns within our world has been run over the course of time. And in the West in particular, uh, you know, the, there is this very active role that is played. And uh, unless specifically, you know, uh, the communities are uh, cloistered, and so on some level, we, we've lost this sense of, of the monastic life. And it, we, I think the church as a whole does well to regain it. Uh, again, because of the clarity of vision that it gives us in terms of what has enduring value. And then it puts the question to us, what is it that you seek? And what is it that you desire above all things within this world? You know, it does not mean that we are all called to the monastic life but we are all called to desire the kingdom above all things. And it's this alone that keeps us from being driven by the passions. A brother asked Abba Poyman, what should I do about the harmful friendships that I have? The elder replied, is there a man who in the throes of death cares about the friendships of this world? Do not go near them or touch them, and they will be removed from you. So sounds rather jarring and harsh. Uh, but in reading this, uh, I began to think of the, the, the parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins. And, uh, you know, when the bridegroom comes, uh, the foolish ones have no oil for their lamps, and they seek to have the, the wise virgins share their oil with them, and they are, are not uh, given that oil and told to, to go off, and they miss the, the coming of the bridegroom and aren't able to enter into the, the wedding feast, the marriage feast, as it is. And uh, on the surface, it sounds equally as harsh or, or as this story does too, but in reality, I think we have to keep in mind is that we cannot uh, give or share faith with another. It's not a commodity. It's rooted in a relationship that has developed over the course of one's life. And similarly, we cannot share virtue with another. It, it is something that is given to us by the grace of God and fostered through the ascetical life. And so if we neglect this uh, in our own life, what, what value and what worth are friendships that are rooted in worldly things going to provide us at the moment of our death, when the bridegroom comes? And when we hear that call, you know, to, to come out and meet him, what is it that we are going to approach him with if we've neglected that in order to pursue even the worldly, even the joys of, of friendship within this life? And uh, again, I think this 
you know, is not just an important thing for monks to think about, you know, in our day-to-day -day life, uh, there is this enormous value, you know, put on friendships and especially, uh, you know, of wanting the consolation of companionship. And there's certainly nothing wrong or evil about that. But I think when one lives in a culture where perhaps uh, more and more the Christian identity is set aside and more than that mocked and something that is ridiculed, uh, the temptation is to soften our approach or or to let go of that desire that would lead us to pursue the life of virtue in order to maintain those friendships. We can hide that, begin to hide that, that desire, you know, whether it's from spouses, friends, or others, in order to maintain a kind of peace or connection with others, that we would not feel isolated or marginalized within the world. And, you know, yet we hear from Christ himself, you know, the, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, that there is no comfort within this, the world for the one who wholly lives for God and whose nourishment is to be obedient to his will. And so again, you know, in our day-to-day -day life, when we read these things from the fathers, we're called to ask ourselves, is it the desire for the Lord that is driving us? Is, it, is this the lens through which we view every relationship that we are, are in in our life? And does it determine whether or not this relationship is something that stands or that we cling to? Or is it something that we ultimately let go? And this is what will be talked about you know, in greater detail in the next hypothesis, but you can see where we're already being led. Any comments on this? I know it's very challenging. It's not something that you typically hear from the pulpit. Because, you know, I think there's you know, a, a language of vocabulary that dominates now. And one of those things is tolerance. And, you know, and even, even love itself, you know, which uh, is supposed to be, or charity, which is supposed to make us tolerant of everything uh, in the sense of accepting it, you know, not simply loving the individual and being able to see the, the presence of God within them or the image of God within them, but tolerating every path, every idea, every action, and if one does not do that, then one is not being charitable. And here we are being told that not only is it not, you know, it's not charitable truly toward the other, but not towards ourselves either. Uh, you know, to use their language, we, we begin to throw ourselves into death rather than move towards he who is life. An elder said, he who has sinned before God should separate himself from every human contact until he is informed that God has become his friend once more, for the love of men impedes us from the love of God. So, you know, when we find ourselves, you know, moving very far away from God, you know, that we often have to do with the gospel counsels. If, counsels, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That there are certain things in our life that we will have to sacrifice in order to clarify our, our, our vision of things and to begin to, to live for God. And it's only then that we can uh, uh, become you know, friends with others only after we become friends with God. Because how then can we discern what real friendship is? unless we're living in the most important relationship of all. We have no capacity to discern whether or not that relationship is a good thing or not. I've heard in some dioceses that they're thinking about making preparation for marriage a little bit longer, like a year or two. I don't know if anybody else heard that recently. I'm not sure what diocese it is. Uh, because, you know, priesthood isn't the only place where there's a vocation crisis and 
uh, we do a very poor job in many ways, I think, in uh, preparing people for the sacrament. And uh, especially, I think, with this sense, you know, who is it that we would choose to enter into the, the bonds of marriage with? You know, is it simply your charming personality that's going to bind you together for the rest of your life or even physical attraction, your you know, great sense of humor? You know, is that going to pull you through all the difficult times or illness or whatever it might be? Or is it something far greater? Bridget said, I think that news came out from the Pope and yes, much needed. Right, much needed, but who's going to do it and how well are they going to do it? My fear is that we'll create another program that has no value whatsoever. Anthony, friendship can be like alcohol, very valuable, but at the right times and in the right quantities, we can misuse friendship to drown out our real needs. Yeah, you know, I think so. And there are ways that we can even commodify friendships. You know, we can collect friends uh, who really are more like acquaintances, but it can feed us in a certain way uh, for attention even, you know, that we don't feel so much so alone in the world. And so we can gather friends for ourselves uh, in order to have that kind of feeling rather than it having been be uh, rooted in this common love for God and desire for him. An elder said, just as someone who dies in the city, neither hears the voice of anyone there nor perceives anything happening in it, but is transferred to another place where the voices and cries of the city do not reach him. So it is with the monk. When he renounces the world and embraces the monastic life, he ought to be dead to every worldly attachment and to the distraction and toil of a vain and soul-destroying life, putting himself far away from these. If after renouncing the world, he does not depart from his homeland, but is in the midst of his prior disturbances, such a monk is like a corpse lying in a house and stinking, from which all who have smelled it run far away. <laughs> not a very pleasant image, but, uh, you know, one who is not living the life that he's called to uh, has not simply died to the world, but he's truly died. And so it loses the life that he's left the world to gain. And so becomes like a corpse stinking up the house. He does nothing for those with whom he lives in terms of elevating them. In fact, just the opposite, you know, brings them down, uh, having not em embraced the life that he's called to. And certainly, you know, a monk living in a monastery uh, is going to be like that within the monastery, too. So insofar as he clings uh, to his homeland or the things of the world in any way, that rather than, you know, uh, living for God alone, he becomes, again, a corpse. Very powerful images, but I, I think, you know, the Desert Fathers pull no punches uh, because the truth is, uh, truth is often harsh and we often will resist hearing it. And it's hard, you know, for, for I think especially religious people to hear it too, that the form of religiosity, uh, uh, can actually be something that is like a corpse painted up, propped up in the corner, painted up, and everybody's saying how beautiful it is, when in reality, there's no life. You know, it's like we're at a wake, you know, and, uh, but it's, it's not a living or beautiful reality. And I was looking through a series of books from, I think it's from St. Vladimir Press, and I can't remember the, it's a, uh, an Orthodox writer who's rather well known, but he wrote a book called something like Church, Church Nativity, Church in, rather than Christianity. Church and I can't, I'll forget it. I can't pronounce how he wrote it, but you get the idea that there, the idea of the church becomes sort of this reality abstracted from this living relationship and the reality of the incarnation, God coming among us. 
And so we can begin to live this whole, our life can become pharisaical. We can be, begin to live and embrace this religious identity and have this re- vision of the church that again is very much what the author describes here as a corpse, that it begins to stink and rot and become something that uh, is uh, abhorrent to others. And, you know, I think in recent times, you know, I know this is a complicated thing. I'm not trying to overgeneralize or be simplistic here, but we've done a lot to, to deface the, the church or rather deface the image of Christ within the world by not living the life. You know, if we were to be living icons of Christ, of the gospel, and we are, failed to live that, then it becomes, yes, thank you very much. Metropolitan Anthony Bloom uh, wrote the book and it's in the notes now. Thank you, Kevin. And, uh, you know, that the church becomes something that seems abhorrent in the eyes of the world. It's not something that people are attracted to, you know, something that is genuinely true and and beautiful and, that really is the truest reflection of beauty uh, is going to be something that appeals to the human heart that is made in the image and likeness of God. And so if we live this cruciform love, if we really uh, are, you know, take on the image of Christ himself, then the church itself becomes beautiful and something that is attractive, even if the message is presented in the the simplest way. Uh, uh, Yet it's going to draw men and women to it. Uh, I think it's when we soften it so much or distort the message so much that it is no longer something beautiful or recognizable as tied to Christ at all, then who's going to be attracted to it? if it's not going to speak to that truest part of who we are as human beings. It's such a profound illusion that, you know, we feel that we have to entertain, you know, that on this very base level in the same way that we are entertained by everything else. And yet we fail miserably then because in trying to do so, you know, by taking hold of worldly things, we failed to bear witness to that which is of the kingdom. And so it's going to appeal to absolutely no one. And we see that where we fail to do that liturgically, when you know that which is at the center of our worship of God lacks that beauty. And I'm not just speaking of the aesthetic, on the aesthetic level, aesthetic level but lacks this, this beauty which speaks to the human heart, then we lose people in droves. You know, our, our liturgy should speak to the, the deepest part of who we are as human beings. And that's where we should give the greatest attention. Again, you know, Deacon Ed was speaking uh, about Romania and who, who is it again who you said came into uh, the role of Metropolitan? There. Oh, Patriarch Daniel. Patriarch Daniel and his focus upon, upon liturgy and uh, in terms of enlivening the faith of the people. And this bears enormous fruit, even in times of great persecution. Okay. Rachel has a comment here. This reading reminds me of St. Christina the Astonishing. Apparently the stench of people in the church woke her from a coma so serious she was put into a coffin and a community was standing her, uh, attending her funeral. I think it, I think of St. Catherine of Siena being able to smell the stench of sin in some. This always makes me wonder if I stinketh to others. And if so, what can I do to have my prayers rise as incense? Uh, yeah, powerful example. And I've heard the same stories over and over again. You know, Padre Pio, uh, in the in the West, Philip Neri too, you know, could uh, s- smell that that stench of particular passions, and uh, again, there was this kind of clairvoyance. You could see what was going on within the heart of another, and uh, and so I think what you ask here is a good thing. You know, wh- what is it that I'm truly presenting to others, and uh, you know. Is there something that's picked up that is offensive 
uh, in my identity, especially if it's hypocritical. You know, if we are bearing witness to something that we are not living and embracing in its fullness, then it is going to, uh, you know, eventually to rot and become corpse-like. You know, it's going to be something that is abhorrent to the eyes of others. And it's what, what ind individuals of the world point to the most. You know, this kind of hypocrisy in living the life as a Christian. You know, the, the failure to really embrace the gospel in its fullness. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Paragraph number five. The same elder. This, I think, is a very important paragraph here, and maybe we'll stop with it. The same elder said, unsalted meats that have not been seasoned rot and stink, so that all who are nearby turn their eyes away because of the stench. But worms are born and crawl in them and nestle there, eating them. If salt is thrown on them, the worms are destroyed and the stench ceases, for salt has the property of making both disappear. Is in, in just the same way, the monk who surrenders himself to earthly thoughts and outer distractions, rather than practicing silence in his monastery, enabling himself by fear of God to, not to languish in negligence, restraining himself by meditating on death and punishments after death, and strengthening his heart by prayer and vigil, which constitute the spiritual salt. Such a monk rots and is filled with the great stench of unclean and evil thoughts, so that the face of God and the elect angels turn away from him in disgust at the uncleanness of such a soul, removing themselves far away from it. Then the noetic worms, namely the powers of darkness that always take pleasure in such foul odors, nestle and walk about in the rot and graze, reckoning as sweet food, the filth of unclean thoughts and actions through which the miserable soul is destroyed and goes to perdition. So we, we must not cast off the, the spiritual salt, you know, that which preserves the heart from this kind of corruption. We must, must not cut, cast off the grace of God, what has been given to us through the cross and what has been given to us through the sacramental life. Uh, by immersing ourselves in the things that are, are worldly, because then we open ourselves up and even become attraction, attracted, a, an attraction for the evil ones who thrive on such things, are attracted by that which is foul, that, that which does not have the odor of sanctity, but actually the odor of sin. And so we come under greater attack and are ultimately destroyed by it unless we are preserved by what God has given us to preserve us. And so, uh, again, you know, living in the world, this is a very important thing. And I think it draws into focus what we've been talking about, that if we are constantly immersing ourselves in worldly things or worldly relationships, then we are immersing ourselves in something that will corrupt and eventually eat, eat away and destroy uh, any holiness or virtue that may have been gained through the ascetical life. And he closes here with, if a monk is aware of such damage and cast off outer distractions and dedicating his whole self to God and hoping in him entirely, directs his care and preoccupation to pleasing him, then after a short time, God sends him spiritual salt, namely the good spirit who loves mankind, when he comes, all the passions and the demons that operate in and through them immediately disappear and dissipate like smoke. And so there is, is great hope. You know, if a monk or any Christian acknowledges and can, sees, can see this corruption, turns away from these things, and through the ascetical life, through the life of prayer, turns back to God, through repentance, then uh, can receive again this spiritual salt, the gift of the spirit, that in a very short time can bring this healing, that that which had led to the corruption, you know, drifts away like smoke. And so, you know, our, our hope should always be, uh, you know, in the mercy 
and the love of God, that he doesn't desire our destruction. He doesn't desire our death. And as we've heard in so many of the stories, what is most important is the, the repentance where we turn toward God in order to receive that spiritual salt. And it's freely given so long as we turn to him and truly desire it. Carol Nypeer. How do we not become corpses when we totally withdraw from people in our lives? Don't we become dead to them? Is that good for their souls? Well, you know, again, I think the first thing that came to mind, it's a good question. Uh, what, what came to mind is that, you know, how Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. And, you know, he warns people about them, that they're like whitewashed tombs. And you mentioned that uh, in, uh, in your note here as well. And so what he's saying that any contact with them is corrupting. It's like coming into contact with a dead body. And so they, are, you know, in doing so, uh, set themselves outside of the community. You know, it is like touching a dead body would have been for the Jew of Jesus' time, that they would have been made impure, unclean, so much is that they would have been, as it were, excommunicated from the synagogue. And so, you know, he tells them basically, you know, listen to what they teach, but avoid them, stay away from them, because this is what they are in, in reality. And so I think the, the test, again, is often put to us. You know, are we not jeopardizing, you know, the salvation of others? And I think what we learn by looking at the monastic life is the answer to that question is no, that it's not simply our actions, it's but our life in Christ that works towards not only our own salvation, but the salvation of others. So a parent, a friend, you know, who might know this disconnection in concrete reality from those who are close to them. If they are living their Christ life in Christ as fully as possible, become the greatest source of hope for the salvation and the repentance of those who are near and dear to them. And uh, there's not a lack of charity in this, but it's acknowledging that life and love come from one place. They come from Christ, that we are not the savior of others but there's one savior and we cannot set ourselves up in the lives of others as somehow our, our being in their life is what is going to save and redeem them. It's only Christ. And so the sacrifices that we make on their behalf, the mortifications that we embrace, just like the monks who entered in the desert, you know, that, that bears fruit for the church as a whole. And uh, again, I think we've lost sight of this sense of, you know, the communion of saints and the solid, radical solidarity that exists between us, you know, both in our struggle with sin, but our, the solidarity that exists between us in Christ. And so, you know, married couples, I think, are the perfect example of this, that, you know, the, the prayers of a spouse, you know, they're no longer two, but one. And so if one spouse is struggling in the faith life, the, the other spouse is praying, engaging in spiritual sacrifices in order to strengthen the body as a whole. They've become one in Christ. They're no longer two separate individuals. And, they, and so in this sense, they become, in the true sense, they become soulmates with, with the other. But it's their fidelity to Christ that allows that healing to take place by virtue of the sacrament that they've entered into. You know, that's where it becomes the sacrament in the true sense, a source of grace for each other. And I think we've lost sight of this wholly and we've lost sight of it in a, a greater way in terms of our understanding of the church as the body of Christ. So it's a good question, a very hard question, because I think in those relationships that are very important to us or involve individuals, you know, family members, parents, children, uh, you know, where 
there has been a rejection of the faith altogether. You know, that natural bond can pull us perhaps in directions that aren't going to, you know, help us or to help help them. I think that's, this is what they're saying. You know, what does a monk, what value does the monk have for the church or for others if he becomes a stinking, rotting corpse, if he's turned away from what is the source of his, of his life and healing? And so that's true for us. You know, what, what value do we have to others if we turn away from he who is the source of grace and life? Daniel Allen, is it fair to take this one step further and to say that the monk or Christian who follows this advice or path then becomes salt to others who have no salt and become a means of salvation for those around us, a broader and larger connectedness where the strengthening of one part aids the weaker parts of the body, a call to be salt, I'm sorry, I lost, you added a little bit more there, a call to be, I'm sorry, another person, added one there, a call to be salt to the world. And that one isn't simply seeking a personal salvation, but that one would seek to acquire this salt from God for the sake of others as well. Right, you're, you're the salt, uh, you know, light of the world, salt of the earth. And, when, you know, when we lose that saltness, what is it worth? Uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous group that salt was often, we think of it as seasoning, food, giving it flavor, but also as a preservative. But in Jesus' day, it was used within ovens. It would coat the inside of an oven and it helped it to radiate heat in order to bake, you know, bake the bread or whatever was being cooked within it. But eventually it would be broken down so much from uh, being used in that way that it would be thrown into the roads because it had no other value. It couldn't be used for anything else. It would be just thrown out onto the road to be trampled underfoot. And so what Jesus was saying there in the gospel actually was literally true, that once the salt loses its saltness or its quality, whether it's to season or to preserve or as in those ovens to radiate the heat, then it, it loses its value altogether. So if we lose the saltness of the life of the spirit, then eventually we become, we, we lose our worth in the sense of being able to be a preservative for others to aid them in, in any way. And again, I think that's where we are tempted to let go, you know, of, of that identity in order to maintain that companionship and friendship and it serves only for the loss of others and for ourselves. One final comment from Rachel. Once on the way to mass, I ran into a homeless person who was thirsty. The young man was in a wheelchair. When I tried to approach him, he begged me not to approach him. There was a very strong and unpleasant odor coming from him. I approached anyway and he told me, please do not touch him or come closer as his legs were being eaten away by maggots. He lifted his gown, and it is true, he was being eaten alive. I asked him why, if he wanted to go to the hospital, and he declined. Said he had just been kicked out of the hospital. So I asked him if he wants a priest. I will get a priest. He said yes, and to pray, and he allowed me to give my, him my scapular, as I thought he was close to death by the smell. He would not allow me to put the scapular on, but promised he would. I went to Mass, which had already begun. I stopped the first priest I know and told him what had happened, asked him to please go see him immediately. He pulled back and told me uh, that priest so-and-so deals with things like that. While I cannot judge the priest, this is exactly an example of letting the moment pass by when we, we when I am called to do something that our Lord asked. A very good story and certainly one of, you know, charity and we are not called to neglect the demands of love uh, in terms of serving others. But I, I think what, what is being spoken of here is not sacrificing that which is most precious and the source of life altogether, you know, our salvation. And certainly, you know, serving this individual in love and responding, going the extra mile, 
and the priest responding and going the extra mile is what the demands of the gospel ask of us with the demands of love place upon us. But not, to, you know, one is not being drawn into a set of circumstances there where you're being drawn into worldly love. You know, you're being drawn by compassion and mercy to aid another in need. And uh, in the spiritual life, I think what we are being told here, though, is that if we are to become maggot-filled ourselves, what value are we going to be to others that are so afflicted? So if we take the image that you're using here and of this man whose flesh is rotting and is covered with maggots, you know, are we going to serve them in love by taking them to a physician or taking them to get the spiritual aid that they need? Or do we do them any good by sitting in a chair next to them and allowing ourselves to rot? And I think when we enter into the things of the, the world that are corrupting, that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we, we are not loving, you know, because we are turning away from, again, the source of life and healing. And so you're right, you know, I, I think the, the priests in that circumstance missed the opportunity to love. But this isn't quite what is being addressed here. Any other final comments? We're a little over time, but if anybody had a pressing thought. Okay, so some very challenging uh, images, ideas here, and we'll be able to explore them, you know, further as we move on. And, uh, but things I think that we really need to regain, mostly because of the questions that they put to us, and how, how it is that we're living our lives and responding to God. Okay, so when we close, it's always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the Lord be with you. Now, would God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Father. Thank you all.